invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to begin with to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Though we read this earlier, it may be helpful to us to look at it again just briefly in verses 9 and 10. Hebrews 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. I would like to remind us that this morning we have come to meet with the Lord Jesus, that we have come into his presence, that he's put in writing, that where two or three are gathered together in his name, that he's there in their midst. We've come not simply to learn about him, but to worship him, to honor him. With our energies, our thoughts, our affections, our devotion, and all that we are at heart level. Our worship is not measured by the amount of noise we make. It's not measured by the pulpit aerobics that could occur. It is not measured in outward demonstrations, but it is seen by God. It's entirely possible to sit through hundreds, maybe thousands of worship, so-called worship services, and never, never worship. And I would like to think that as we have been singing these various hymns and listening to these thoughts in, in the ministry of song, that have been so nicely presented to us. And now as we look into the word of God, that in all of this, that our thoughts will be drawn to the one who is altogether lovely. I'd like to consider something of the greatness of the Lord Jesus this morning. To recognize the vastness of our universe, that it was his hand that spread the universe about. Crossing thousands of years of light years, yet it was the same hand that put the atom together and all the little subatomic particles. It was the same hand that was stretched out at the cross to embrace the nails. Considering the greatness of one who is infinite, And while we can toss that word around, we really don't understand the implications of it. All that we can do is put a label on a concept. When we consider the greatness of Jesus, he's the one who keeps everything in order. And in all of the universe, it is only in the realm of sin that he is not the beloved one. When we consider the greatness of the Lord Jesus, that he is the heavenly bridegroom, that he is also going to be the judge who will sit on that great white throne one day and face the masses of humanity who have 
rejected his so great salvation that we read about earlier in this chapter and be consigned to the lake of fire for eternity. It is this one into whose presence we have come this morning. And it is always most becoming that our thoughts and our words and our behavior reflect our understanding of whose presence we have come into. And one simply needs to look at the examples of Scripture to see the reaction of human beings, believers, as they realize they were in the presence of infinite God. It's so easy to be caught up in the sound, the music, the atmosphere, and to be oblivious to the one in whose presence we have come, to be unmindful of the greatness of our Savior and to be focused on ourselves, to be focused on social concern, to be focused on a tradition rather than a person. And we have come as believer priests, those who've been set aside by God for this great task. Now, with those thoughts in mind, I'd like you to look at part of verse 10 again in those words, the captain of our salvation, the captain Please go back with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 5. And there we see the one in whose presence we have come this morning in his pre-incarnate state, coming as the captain of the host of the Lord. Looking at verse 13, it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, Keep in mind now, Joshua is Moses' successor. He's the captain. He's basically in charge here. That he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. I don't think he was swatting mosquitoes with that. I think he had pretty intense business in mind. And said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he this one who had the sword drawn, said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And what did Joshua do? He didn't do the boogie-woogie in the aisles. Notice what he did. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship. What did he do in his worship? Did he break out in some great melodious song. It simply tells us that he worshipped. He adored. He expressed affection, dedication, commitment, and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? There's absolute submission here. And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. This pre-incarnate Jesus, the captain of our salvation, said to Joshua, Take your shoe off. You're standing on holy ground. What made the ground holy? It was the very presence of the second person of the Godhead. And so he said, Take your shoe off. Don't have anything that comes between you and the presence of God. And you stand there before me.
pre-incarnate Jesus came to be the captain over Israel's forces as they faced Jericho and the invasion of the land of Canaan and all of the grief and warfare that was about to dawn. This captain of the Lord's host had his sword already out of its sheath, ready for action, probably sharp and glistening in the light. It was ready to go to work. Joshua's success in Canaan was guaranteed by the presence of this captain of the Lord's host. His presence made it certain that Israel would be victorious. What was Joshua's response? Joshua didn't stand there as a superhero. He didn't say, listen, I'm a big shot. I want you to know who I am. I'm the captain. I'm the boss here. He said, I'm your servant. There was no sense of pride or arrogance. There was no sense of personal importance. He was not a superhero. He was a servant. And he was an obedient servant. He took his shoe off and stood before the Lord. It is true that God gave him some unusual instructions. Get all Israel together. You march around Jericho once a day. And you do it silently. Silently. And then on the seventh day, you go around seven times, and you be quiet. And then, having completed all of these trips around, then the seven priests are to blow the seven ram's horns, and everybody is to shout. That seems funny. That doesn't seem like a very successful military strategy for conquering. Be quiet. Go for a walk. But it worked, because it was God's instruction We know the story of how the walls came down and how the city was destroyed and then ultimately burned. Why? Why did that happen? Because God was present. We come across the same thing in 2 Chronicles chapter 13. 2 Chronicles chapter 13. In verse 12, war between Israel and Judah was going on. Jeroboam, one of the most evil men to rule over Israel, had been doing things in God's sight that were an abomination. We read in verse 12, here is Abijah speaking now to Jeroboam, and he says, And behold, God himself is with us for your captain, our captain. And his priest with sounding trumpets to cry alarm against you, O children of Israel, the northern kingdom. Fight ye not against the Lord God of your fathers, for ye shall not prosper. We had lots of time. We could read the rest of the story of how Jeroboam's forces came and surrounded Judah's. The people of Judah, realizing who their captain was, cried out to him, and the forces of Israel were destroyed in history tells us there were about a half million men destroyed on that occasion. Why? Because the captain of their salvation and our salvation was present. You might just go back with me for a moment to look at the Hebrews chapter 2 passage. What we've tried to do is set a little bit of the background as captain of our salvation, captain of the host of the Lord, In chapter 2 and verse 9, it says, But we see Jesus. Not literally. 
but with our understanding. We can't say that he's sitting here or here or on the front pew or somewhere else. We can't see him literally, but we can recognize his presence, believe his presence. We see him, the text of Scripture says, made lower than the angels so that he could suffer death. Not just to go and lie down and quietly stop breathing and pass away, but the death of the cross and all of the grief and pain and suffering that went with it. He was made lower than angels so that he could suffer death. You ever wonder what that was really like? Here is the one who is the source of eternality, one who inhabits eternity. And for a time, he was just a little tiny embryo, maybe just a couple centimeters long. And yet he was still the sustainer of all things. And then as he grew, splashing around in the dark in amniotic fluid, to realize that he laid aside the prerogative to exercise all those perfections of deity, to recognize the truth of the kenosis, to realize that he came to be born, to be formed, first of all, in a very young Jewish young lady, a godly young woman. And as she carried him around within her to realize here is the God of all heaven right within her. I wonder if she thought much about that as she no doubt felt him move and kick and twist and turn and do somersaults and all of those things that little unborn children do. What an amazing thing. To realize here is the union within Mary, the union of infinite God and a human being. What a puzzle that presents in the hypostatic union, the two, deity and humanity. We see his purpose, the text tells us, made lower than the angels so that he could suffer death, presented as crowned with glory and honor, now seated at his Father's right hand, crowned with glory and honor with that which he had prior to the incarnation. The text tells us that he tasted death. I have a sneaky suspicion that was a very bitter taste. And yet he did it voluntarily. And he didn't just take a little sip of it, but he drank it to its fullness. The text tells us that he did that for every man. The word for is a substitutionary term. He did it on behalf of every man. Just go back with me for a moment. Passage that comes to mind in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians Chapter 5. Just looking at verse 19, just for time's sake. To it that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Doing it for the world. He became our substitute. He 
Not something, but he, a person, is our salvation. He is the one who in part sanctifies us, who defends us, who looks after us. His purpose, to taste death for every man. I'd like you to notice also in verse 10 his position. It was fitting. It was fitting. It it seemed good in God's sight. Just go back to the Hebrews chapter 2 passage. In verse 10, where it says, For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. What was his purpose? To die. His position, it was fitting. It pleased the Father to bruise him, as we know from Isaiah 53. Now, how do we understand that? What earthly father would like to bruise his son? That's no, nobody in their right mind wants to do that. We want to protect, not bruise, our children. And yet it pleased the Father to bruise him. Well, just think for a moment. Think beyond the, the little box that we are so commonly inclined to think in to realize the wonders of what eternity will hold, to realize that the desire in the Father for the Son to become the Savior of the world was also the same desire that was in the Son and in the Spirit. It pleased the Father. We may look at the suffering that took place in his body, but we can also lose sight of the fact of the glory that will be revealed in God's own throughout the ages of eternity. Perhaps it was that that he had in mind when it pleased the Father to bruise him, when it was fitting for him to become the captain of our salvation, to become our great high priest. Just turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6 for a moment. In verse 20, Hebrews 6 and verse 20 says, Whither the forerunner is for us, entered even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, never subjected to death ever again. He is our high priest. And then look at chapter 7 and verse 26, where it says, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Hmm. Holy, harmless, undefiled. He is our great high priest and the one who dictates to us, the one who orders us, who admonishes us as his believer priest. Now, in the chapter 2 and verse 10, sometimes people struggle a little bit with those words to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings, as if Maybe there was some imperfection that needed to be fixed. Not at all. The word perfect here comes from a Greek word. The root word is telos, and it has the idea of the goal. You see, his goal was to be our great high priest. And in order to do that, he had to complete certain things. He had to be obedient to the Father. That was a prerequisite. He must identify with people. We know that from Hebrews 5 and verse 9. So he must be obedient to the Father. He must identify with people. And he must present an atonement. Not, in this case, an animal. 
but himself, one of much more value than any or all animals together. As our substitute, he must bear our eternal punishment. Now, the text of our our passage here in, in verse 10 calls him the captain of our salvation. The word that is translated captain is used four times in the New Testament. And the significance of that is how it is translated elsewhere. It is also translated in Hebrews 12.2 as, as author. It is also translated as prince. We, as we look at that word, it, it comes from a root word meaning to begin. It's the term arche. And the word that is used here is archegos. The significance of that is that he is the captain. He's the leader. He is the author, the originator, and he's the prince. He's the authority behind our salvation. How thankful we can be for that fact. One who leads, guides, strengthens, defends, provides for us, comforts us, subdues enemies, and suffers with us. So he's the captain of our salvation. Just as he was captain of the host of Israel, going back to Joshua 5, just as he defended Abijah and the people of Judah against Jeroboam in the northern kingdom of Israel, so he is our captain. He has the right to tell us what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and all of the explanations that go with it. Now, I'd like you to go with me to, to Ephesians rather, chapter 1. So he is our captain, but Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that he is the head over all things to the church. Ephesians chapter 1, and just for time's sake, we'll look at verse 22. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, to the church universal, to the church locally. He is the head. Who is the head of your church? Who is evidently the head of your church? Our church. It should not be the pastor. Now, I'm not minimizing pastoral leadership. But the one who should be the head, capital H, should evidently be Jesus. That he should be the center of the singing the music, the ministry of the word, missions, evangelism, correction, exhortation, and all that goes with it. He is the head of the church. Now that word head is used four times in the book of Ephesians. It has the idea of authority or the leader, the ruler, the one who has preeminence. I think it is inappropriate for pastoral leadership to assume that role that is uniquely that of Jesus and his alone. He is the head of the church. He's the point of focus. He should be the point of focus in the prayer meeting, in the worship service, in the ministry time, whether it be in Sunday school or weeknight or whatever it might be. He is the head of the church. And it is wrong 
for any human being to assume that position and become the head himself, or even today, herself, even greater abomination. He is to govern all interpersonal relationships, all philosophy of ministry. He is the head of the youth group, the Sunday school, the nursery, the committees, and all that goes on in the context of the church, whether it's looked at universally as the church universal or the local church. The church is a unique body of believers, not who are having a nice time at a beach on a warm, sunny Saturday afternoon, but it is a church when believers have come together and focused around the person of the Lord Jesus. You don't need a steeple. You don't need stained glass windows. You don't need all kinds of music. But what we do need, what one does need to constitute a true church is the presence of Jesus and for him to be central, to be evidently the head. We might consider his leadership. He's the head. But we might also consider his love, the love of Christ. Over in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23, we have another very, very sobering, very profound truth. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Even as Christ is the head of the church. And he uses the analogy of marriage. Here it is a loving relationship. And here we see something of the love of this one who is the head over the church. In a marriage, would it be a happy marriage to say, I have to look after her for the rest of my life. I have to care for her until I die. Oh, that's serious. Or I have to cook for him and wash his socks for as long as I live. Oh, what a, what a miserable thing this is. No, it's a loving relationship where there is mutual submission. I want to do this for you. I want to care for you. I want to, I desire, that's my heartbeat, to do this. It's a loving relationship. And as he is the head of the church, it is a loving relationship to the church. Keeping in mind that it is a happy submission and it's a holy cooperation, working together for his honor. Love in the church should be profoundly evident. And we do well, we do well, you and I do well, to evaluate ourselves and to say, to what extent do I love my classmate? I won't say roommate, that, that might be going too far. No, seriously. <laughs> to what extent do I love my classmate, my fellow student, my fellow believer, my brother, my sister? We do well to examine our own hearts and to say yes or no honestly and then make whatever corrections are necessary. It is a relationship involving leadership and it's a relationship involving love. I have prepared much more than there is time to deliver, but I would like you to consider with me for a few moments that he is the shepherd. He's the captain of our salvation. He is, in fact, the head 
over all things to the church, and he is also the shepherd. We know from John chapter 10 that he's the good shepherd. He loves the sheep. He cares for them individually and collectively. He looks after the whole herd, and he looks after the little one, the elderly, the infirmed, the needy. He lays down his life for the sheep, and his sheep know him. They know his voice. They know what what his pattern of behavior is, and they have learned to trust him. As the good shepherd, he will lead his sheep to green pastures. To get there, however, he may lead them across some barren ground. He may lead them over some rocky terrain, but he will lead them for their good. He hasn't changed. He will lead us, maybe over barren ground, maybe over rocky terrain, but he will ultimately bring us to green pastures and quiet waters. How thankful we can be that he is the good shepherd. Hebrews 13.20 calls him the great shepherd. The great shepherd. And he is the shepherd of the flock, just as he is the head over the body. As the shepherd, as the great shepherd, as the good shepherd, he will always do what is right. Though we may not understand, and though at the time we may not appreciate what he's doing, he will always be doing what is right, in light of both time and eternity. But keep in mind that he is the shepherd. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he's called the chief shepherd. He's the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd. Under shepherds are not to be lords over God's household. We are not to be super bosses, not to be dictators. And sometimes I think it is good for God's servants to be reminded of that fact. We are at best under shepherds. When I look back over my years of experience, it seems very insignificant to me, but when I look back over my own years, I have met a lot of strange people. For a time, I served as vice president of the pastoral care staff in the Sackville Hospital. I served as chairman of the credentials committee. For one term, I was moderator for the Fellowship Baptist Atlantic Churches. For a time, I served on the French board for the Fellowship Baptist Churches for Quebec. And I've met some people, and I'm not trying to be critical, who talked about my church. It's not your church. Now I know what they're saying. But they've lost sight of the fact that it's the Lord's church. They are only an under-shepherd, a servant to that church, not pridefully saying, my church, or in my church we do such and such. I listened to one pastor say one time, when people see me walk down the street, I want them to say, there goes sweet, lovable pastor so-and-so. That's nonsense. You see, the fact is, Jesus is the chief shepherd. 
And he is the one who is in authority. And we do well to recognize that fact. He's the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, the great shepherd. He's the captain of our salvation. And he is, in fact, the head of the church. And we'll leave what I've prepared maybe for another time. Let's sing together thoughtfully. God leads us along. As the shepherd, he leads us. As the captain, he leads us. As the head, he leads us.